Isaiah chapter 9. Now this is the living word of God to us. Beginning in verse 1, it reads, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the, day, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dress stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide his, this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry, and they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to your hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious Lord's Day gathering. And first and foremost, we want to thank you that we have the freedom to gather. Lord, we are incredibly privileged where we live and where we dwell, yet in a place that um, does not persecute the gathering of the saints, but we know at the same time that throughout this world, uh, many are gathering in secret. Many are suffering the onslaught of an evil world that hates you and that hates all who represent you. We pray for them. We lift them up to you this morning. We pray that they would be strengthened and girded in mind and truth. And we know that they pray for us. 
thinking that we're more deceived, more easily led astray because they in their face know who the enemy is. But we here are oftentimes overcome by trickery. Lord, help us to adhere to the truth, to love the truth. Bless your dear people this morning. Impress upon our hearts, Lord, the glory of the truth revealed for us in here, the uh, ninth chapter of the book of Revelation, to see the mercy and the grace granted to those of us in Christ that will never suffer the wrath of the Father, that will never suffer the wrath of the Lamb. May we be forever grateful for the mercy granted to us in Christ Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Now, if you would, look with me, if you will, at Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 to 21. The title of this morning's message is Falling Brimstone and the Altar of Grace. The Word of God reads, verse 13, Revelation 9. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire uh, and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of those horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This ends the reading of the word of God this morning. Now beloved as we study the book of Revelation it's, in most, it's most important that we remember the original recipients, the original audience that received this epistle. And the book of Revelation is an epistle. It is a letter. It was written to a group of Christians who were witnessing day to day the outward success and, and seemingly stress-free life of those who dwell within the idolatrous, wicked Roman Empire. And to each of those seven historic churches, Jesus said in Revelation 1 verse 3, through John, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is what? The time is near. He goes on to introduce himself as John. This letter is to the seven churches that are in Asia. 
Jesus goes on and concludes each of those seven letters with the pronouncement, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He goes on to give these glorious promises. To the one who conquers, will eat from the tree of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death, but they will be given hidden manna and a new name, given authority over the nations, clothed in white garments. They will be a pillar having written on them the name of the Father, the Son, and the new Jerusalem. And they will be granted the privilege to sit with Jesus on his throne. All of which are eternal promises given to those who are in Christ by way of the atonement. Because of the judgment that was deserving of you, because of the judgment that was deserving of me, because of the judgment that was deserving of this, this first century church was laid upon Jesus. The lamb of God who was slain, who now stands with seven sealed scroll in his hand. This atonement was designed specifically for those in Christ, meant for those in Christ, sealing them in, in Christ, eternally protecting you in Christ. The judgments being depicted here in Revelation chapter 9 are specifically designed and meant for the enemies of God who do not have Christ, who have not surrendered to Christ, and who do not want Christ. And the picture of his judgments through these seven trumpet blasts of warnings, as we've studied over the weeks, are increasing in intensity. As each warning trumpet is blown, the judgment is more fierce. And these are referred to now as woe judgments. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. If you remember in John 8, verse 13, there was the eagle flying above saying, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell upon the earth. So the objects of these judgments have been clearly specified by this specific phrase, those who dwell on the earth. In other words, those who are in rebellious opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ, i.e., these are not Christians. In chapter 11, the phrase, those who dwell on the earth, refer to those who rejoice over the death of the two witnesses of the church. In chapter 13, those who dwell on the earth refers to those who worship the beast. When we get to chapter 17, we'll see that that group of people are referred to those as who've become drunk with the sexual immorality of the great harlot. And again in chapter 17, those who dwell on the earth refer to the names that have not been written in the book, the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the earth. So again, what's in view here, beloved, are not Christians, but rather those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bottom line, we deserve this, but have been granted mercy. Mercy. Therefore, the areas in which unbelievers seem to succeed, be it in wealth or power, uh, fame, having leverage while they dwell here on this earth is not to be the cause of jealousy for Christians. It's not something we should uh, have resentment against or even envy. For the Proverbs clearly says to, says to those recipients of the word of God, Proverbs 3, do not envy the oppressor, choose none of his ways. Surely he scorns the scornful but gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit glory 
but shame shall be the legacy of fools. The psalmist, what did he say? Psalm 73. Oh, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, as you'll recall, in those seven letters to these seven churches, these Christians in the first century, this is is exactly what they faced. The temptations of an unbelieving world, the temptations to compromise the faith and flow with the idolatrous culture that surrounded them. This is this very warning that Jesus gave to the majority of those seven churches. But then he goes on to give this glorious vision. Remember, he gave that great promise, he who conquers to the end will receive this, this, and this, everything of eternal value. But he goes on to give this vision now to John to be handed over to the churches of the judgment that is going on in the heavenlies upon an unbelieving people. Therefore, this church who's suffering persecution, they're suffering death, martyrdom, they're going to be able to understand and be encouraged that everything that's surrounding them, they are protected from spiritually forever because of their victor, the conqueror, Jesus Christ. We noticed last time we were together that the Lord himself sends demonic torment upon unbelievers. That was by way of the fifth trumpet judgment, which was a limited kind of torment. It was limited to attacking their conscience and their soul. It's kind of like Romans 1 where, you know, God lifts his hand of restraint. The only reason that evil doesn't manifest itself in the worst form possible is because of God's glorious hand of restraint. When he pulls back his hand of restraint, all hell breaks loose loose, literally. Now, the judgment by the demonic plague we witnessed last time wasn't able to take lives physically, but here now that judgment is intensified to also take lives physically. And if the physical life of the unbeliever is taken, he is cast into torment that is now eternal. That's the picture. It's a very gruesome picture. So the second woe describes just that. This is humanity's last warning. And Christians are being given this vision to understand, okay, I see why things happen as they do. The lamb is on the throne. Warning the world through trumpet judgments. And when that seventh trumpet judgment sounds, we'll see that's the final judgment, which is yet to come. So this is the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. The lamb who alone was worthy to take that scroll from the right hand of the father, begin to peel open each one of the seven seals. And here we now are in the middle, right here during the sixth trumpet sound. Notice verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Now the reference here to this golden altar of incense is linked, as you recall, to the prayers of God's people. Notice back in chapter 8, verse 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Which is to say, beloved, that this aspect of God's judgment that's being depicted here in the Revelation is directly connected to the prayers of God's people for vindication. 
The vindication of their suffering, the vindication of his holy name. The result of the prayers of God's people are seen right here in verse 14. Once again. Notice verse 14. Here at the golden altar before God, he's saying... The sixth angel who had the trumpet releases the order, the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So here then, these prayers are the prayers of God's people who seek his holy vengeance upon those beloved who oppose him by harming us. Now again, place yourself in the first century. This church is under heavy persecution. The book of Revelation, again, is not meant to mean to us what it never meant to them in the first place. Very important principle to rightly interpret this book. They're under great persecution. So they're given this picture. Prayers of the saints. Look back at chapter 6, verse 9. When the fifth seal was open, I saw, John said, under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice. Notice what they cried. Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So the order of response to these prayers of God's people is the release now of these four bound angels from the Euphrates. That great river Euphrates. Now, once again, as we study the book of Revelation, you know as we've been over, going over this over and over again, th- this is a word picture. Therefore, it is not meant for us here to literally lay out a map of the Middle East and begin drawing lines of military strategy this day. Again, this is a word picture steeped in symbolism. What then, we ask, is the meaning of the Euphrates? Well, we have to look at this historically because that's the way John saw it. When John is given this vision, he is taken back to pictures of the Old Testament, what we know as the Old Testament. Historically, the river Euphrates was the eastern border of the kingdom of Israel. And as you pass over the boundary of the quote-unquote kingdom, what do you find? Of any kingdom, you find enemies of the kingdom. And beyond the Euphrates, back in the Old Testament, was Nineveh. Remember what um, Jonah thought of Nineveh. (laughs) He was called to go there, and he hated those people because those those people dished out cruelty to Jews. So it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Now, they're the ones who had taken northern Israel into captivity 400 years before this letter was written. But then during the 3rd century BC, a group formed that were known as the Parthian Empire. These great warriors, the Parthians. So this image of the east and the river Euphrates speaks of oppression, it speaks of exile, and it speaks of captivity to those first recipients of this letter. That's the picture going through their mind. So those first century readers would have, would have readily identified with the language that John is using here. And the fear of the Jews back in those days was this Parthian invasion from the east proceeding from across that river. That's the imagery being conveyed. Now, during the time of the Roman Empire, when the book of Revelation was written, although Rome claimed to rule the north, the south, and the west, 
know this, they feared the Parthians, the Roman Empire. The Parthians became a constant threat to the Roman Empire. They were known for their boldness in battle. They had perfect, their archers had perfected this ability to ride full force on their horses while they shot their arrows backwards. And at one time, the Parthians killed two legions of Roman soldiers from a shower of arrows. A legion being 6,000. 12,000 Roman soldiers dead by the Parthians. So John here uses the ancient geographical terminology to portray the character of God's fearful judgment that is consuming a rebellious people. But this illustration here far transcends any local or geographical event. This is a picture for them, and it's a picture, therefore, for every century of Christians thereafter. Wherever they may dwell, wherever they may suffer, wherever they're tempted, wherever they have doubt, they look at this glorious picture, which takes them back to the Old Testament, which helps explain the imagery before us so that we can be encouraged, that we can stand faithful, knowing that we are sealed and protected from the wrath of God. Because who bore that wrath in our place? The Lamb of God. So the four angels now, notice they're bound. Now if they're bound, they're evil. Bound at the extremity or bound at the border of the kingdom. That's the picture for this first century church. Now it's interesting, this word for bound is the same word used for the binding of Satan in chapter 20 of the Revelation. So we're given a picture here of angels, these four that are held back. They're held back from unleashing judgment. And they cannot and they will not transcend the boundary of God unless they are given permission. And did you know that, beloved? The devil and Satan can do nothing except that which God allows him to do for his greater sovereign purposes. The devil, Martin Luther said, is God's devil. So here now is this voice from the heavenlies. This is either God's voice or the one who speaks with his authority with this command, verse 15. And then the response is, the four angels who'd been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Striking. So these demons now who were bound are released and enabled. In other words, they are allowed to pass over the borderline, if you will. Prepared to afflict a third of humanity. So here's the Lord now increasing the intensity from judgment of mind and soul, but not taking their lives, to here physical death, which, by the way, solidifies their spiritual death in eternity. For to die in an unbelieving condition, beloved, is to remain in an unbelieving condition forever. The initial step of eternal condemnation is death of the body for the unbeliever. You are the sealed. You are the saved. You are the protected. The fifth, what, what the fifth trumpet tells us? It, it tells us that there will be martyrs until the second coming of Christ. So we die physically. Where do we go? Immediately to be with the Lord. This group? Eternal torment. Now the verb tense is interesting here of these four angels. Notice they had been. 
They had been prepared, which indicates for us that these four angels had been prepared for this very moment. And what this does, this stresses the idea of a specific moment that was ordained by God sometime in the past. And then from that time, these four continue in a state of readiness as per God's sovereign preordained plan for the unfolding of his sovereign plan, which corresponds with what? The prayers of the saints, as we've already witnessed. Notice verse 16. So here they are released. Here's this enemy invasion in the mind of this first century church. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Also translated perhaps in your Bible, two myriads of myriads. The mathematical total here would be mounted troops of 200 million. That's a big number. Now, some argue that this is a literal picture of 200 million horses and riders. Now, there's no need to view this as literal. Again, this is a picture with great, great meaning behind the picture. Notice, it was John who heard this number. Remember when John heard the number of the 144,000 sons of Israel? That's what he heard. In Revelation 7, he heard the number, 144,000 of the sons of Israel. But when he turned and he looked, what did he see? He saw something different when he looked at the vision. And it was a multitude that no one could number from all tribes and all people and all nations. So after hearing a number of 200 million riders on 200 million horses, when he turns and he looks and sees this vision, there's something other here than a mere Parthian army. Something much more grotesque. And then in verse 17, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. So here again we see imagery, fiery smoke of belching creatures. Now some who claim a literalistic approach to the book of Revelation, will they have to deviate at this point And they'll say that, okay, well, these aren't 200 million soldiers on horses. This is more of a 21st century military aircraft that shoots shoots missiles or something like that. Now, that vision would in no way have been feasible to the first century church, let alone encouraging to them. See, it's our job to go back to the time to depict what it is that he has been given a vision of. And again, it takes us back to the Old Testament, for which we will go back again this morning. What this is, beloved, is a demonic cavalry. That's the picture. Demonic cavalry. The point and purpose of this picture, the point and purpose of these riders and of their horses is not 200 million men on literal 200 million horses, but rather what it's indicating for us is a demonic horde of attack upon unbelievers that is innumerable. That can't touch you. Because in chapter 7, you're sealed. You're protected. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, we see large numbers like this. 
that usually indicate angelic hosts. Psalm 68, 17, the chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. In Revelation 5, remember we saw that great... um, angelic hosts around the throne of God where I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. The emphasis here in verses 16 to 19 in Revelation chapter 9 is on the demonic character of this cavalry which shows no mercy to men, women, or children. Unbelievers. Notice the color of their breastplates. These, beloved, are colors that correspond with hell itself. You have fiery red. Sulfur is the color yellow. And then you have the color sapphire, which is blue. And when you burn sulfur, the flame is blue. So the fierceness of this cavalry is not on the riders. The focus and our attention is drawn to, notice, the horses. We just see the color of the breastplates of the riders and then notice the, the, the horses themselves. They have heads like lions. This is a picture of fierceness, a beast that devours its prey with fi- fire pouring forth from its mouth. And those great creatures of old, um, going back to the Old Testament, beasts with fire coming out of their mouth. That's the picture. That's what they see. And it's a number that is incalculable. It's not calculable. It's very intimidating. So the Christians being secure can see that amidst all of this turmoil, behind the veil, that's what Revelation is, a tearing back of the veil, there's a vision given. That this is the Lamb of God who's on the throne giving trumpet judgments to a world that hates him, warning them that there's final judgment to come. Now it's interesting um, that the man that Jesus confronted who was demon-possessed back in Luke 8. Remember, he was running around the tombs naked, cutting himself, and Jesus commanded, he said, what is your name? And the demon answered, he said, my name is Legion. Legion being what? 6,000. So if a, if, if a legion of demons couldn't dwell one man, uh, that is but a small part of what the Holy Spirit calls in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, verse 12 spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. which Ephesians goes on to say, you have been delivered from. The prince of the power of the air, delivered. You know, it's interesting to note today, as far as Asia is concerned, that demonic religions east of the Euphrates, if you will, (laughs) number in the millions. India is said to have 33 million gods. 33 million gods? How on earth can you come up with something like that? Leave it to fallen man. They'll worship anything, we'll worship anybody, we'll worship any ideal. But all worship and all belief outside of Jesus Christ is idolatrous and demonic in nature. So here is a plague that destroys people, destroys their souls. Notice verse 18. By these three plagues... A third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. Now, one third, I don't believe, is to be taken literally. I think it should be taken symbolically. Or we might say in order to take the number literally, you have to understand the picture properly. To ask, okay, what's really being said here? When we go back to the four horsemen, when the seven seals were open, the first four, notice those four horsemen were given power over one quarter of the earth. Remember that? 
and that is war and bloodshed and pestilence and famine. And Jesus said, you will have those things until I return. And they're just the beginning of birth pains. But here now we see that the ante is increased to one-third. Under the four horsemen, we're given the time span between the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ, the emphasis being on that entire time span. But here now, as time moves on, there's a picture. As time moves on, so does the intensity of his judgment upon an unbelieving world. Destructive force is increasing as John draws this imagery that leads to final judgment. Trumpets of warning, trumpets of warning to an unbelieving world And we'll see that final judgment depicted again when we get to the seventh trumpet. So here we have fire and smoke, brimstone falling everywhere, fire, flame, sulfur. You know, the great Jonathan Edwards, pastor and theologian, he was a pastor kicked out of his pulpit. Uh, He was a very firm preacher. And they kicked him out. So he went and preached to the Indians. He used to preach and he used to say, often speaking of brimstone, brimstone that is falling all around us. And we ask, where? Where is this fiery brimstone? I don't see this fiery brimstone, but the truth of the matter is, beloved, we don't see it with the physical eye. But you as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, having been given the spirit of truth and the revelatory truth of Christ through his word, we see with spiritual eyes the very judgments that you are protected from. Idolatry false belief in God lifting his hand of restraint and turning sinners over to a depraved mind. So fire and sulfur remind us of Sodom and Gomorrah, do they not? God's judgment on wickedness, which is a foretaste of eternal torment. And that's what we see around us. God is giving a foretaste of eternal torment, trumpets of judgment to get people to what? To repent. To repent. But once again, this judgment is still limited. The number destroyed is a third of mankind. Verse 19. Now notice the power. This is the power of these beasts. The power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. So what's this vision telling us? It's telling us this, beloved. We are engaged in a war of words. A war of words. And this war of words either comes from on high, heaven itself, from the very mouth of God, or these words come from the depths and the pit of hell themselves. And we're in the midst of that as we speak and listen this very morning. Why do we call Jesus Christ the word become flesh? He is the word who's become flesh because he, beloved, is the very expression of God. He is God incarnate, so we must talk about him and allow the words that come out of our mouth to be that which is from on high, meaning that which is from his word, to explain him, to explain his grace, and to explain his judgment to an unbelieving world. Because the other side of the battle is being engaged. You're engaged in it, beloved, by those who are opposed to our God, they're opposed to our Christ, they're gathering all of their arguments, all the arguments that they can, they gather together to oppose our gospel, to oppose our Lord, and to persecute you in the name of Christ, who stand in the name of Christ. 
So this is the word lived out. This is the word spoken, formed by the Holy Spirit, is the only thing that will save sinners. This is the gospel that saved you. This is the truth that saved me. So the powers of these horses is in their mouths, and they have tails like serpents. Now, we read from Isaiah 9 this morning. Perhaps you caught this. The heads of state in Israel were known as the head. And when they turned away from God, God's displeasure came upon the nation. He judged them. And he referred to their false prophets as the tail. Now, while they spoke words that were not his, he would bring forth judgment upon them. Now, notice now the words of Isaiah 9, from which we read this morning, beginning in verse 13. The people did not turn to him who struck them. So, in other words, the people did not turn to him, God, who was striking them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail. Palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head. And the prophet who teaches lies is the what? The tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray. Those who are guided by them are swallowed up. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes the briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest. And they roll upward in column of smoke. Throughout the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. And the people are like fuel for the fire. That's frightening. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Revelation 9. You see, this is where we dwell, beloved. We are witnessing churches today more interested in political correctness than in the truth of the gospel. So the trumpet is sounding, and there is no less trouble on the horizon for an unbelieving world or an apostate church. The warning blasts are sounding. God's enemies are being judged by this demonic force. That's the picture. Is God judging evil with evil? But here's the question. How did demons kill? Demons are non-corporeal, they're spirits. Satan's non-corporeal, he's a spirit. He's not physical. How do they kill? We know that the Bible says only God can give life and only he can take life. So how? How do they do that? Well, first of all, they're given permission. And to understand this, we need to look at another portion of scripture, which takes us back to the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he confronted the most religious hierarchy of his day, the Sanhedrin, Sadducees, and Pharisees, And he said this, he said to them, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a, what? A murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So how does Satan murder? He murders by lying and deceiving. Remember back in the garden? God said, surely in the day that you eat of it, you will die. Here comes Satan. Did not God say you could eat from every tree? Well, he said, we can't eat from this tree. You will not surely die. As a matter of fact, the day that you eat of it, he will know. He knows that you will be like him. She ate, and what happened? Death. Spiritual death. Physical death. But then there was God in the garden promising that there would be one who would come 
who would crush the head of the serpent, but in the process, his heel would be bruised, and that is the first promise of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who would come and bear all of that wrath, all of that wrath that is deserving of all of mankind, to where God would place upon his son his outrage over sin and rebellion, and Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, would take it in order to crush the head of the serpent. Therefore, you stand sealed. Therefore, you stand protected. Therefore, you stand cloaked in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ, protected from this judgment because the judgment has already been released upon him. Paul said this, he, Satan, has blinded the eyes of those who do not believe. You believe, you're not blind. The whole earth lies in the lap of the wicked one, John said. Ephesians 2, he, Satan, is described as the prince of the power of the air, the one you've been delivered from. Set free. So the power of death here is no different. It comes by ways of lies and deceit. Now the death physically manifests itself in many different ways throughout time. But this is an intensified picture, again, of judgment. It's being stirred up in preparing uh, the world for this final trumpet blast, and that's the second coming of Jesus Christ where there is no second chance. Paul said most emphatically that in the last days, men will be what, beloved? They will be deceived. Deceiving, if possible, Jesus said, even the elect. But it's not possible, is it? It's not impossible to deceive the elect of God, but the statement that Jesus makes there provides for us a picture of just how deceiving these lion forces are. These are lion forces that are lying forces. Those not sealed by the Holy Spirit. Very deceiving. That's what religion does. Notice the result of the demonic affliction, verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries. That's, you know, like drug use today. The word pharmakia was where we get the word pharmaceutical and pharmacy. And it's interesting. So many people do so many drugs and it's a very sorcery, very evil type of demonic interaction nor do they repent of their sexual immorality, nor of their thefts. Why, beloved? Because the trumpet is sounding. Why are the storm clouds on the horizon? Because God is warning in his mercy for people to repent. Warning, warning, warning to an unbelieving world. You know, people within this social, political, economic, and educational system of our day, they actually become like the system. That's what they do. You don't have a choice. You become like the system. But nevertheless, in the midst of it all, you have Christians who are working and testifying within those systems by the grace of God, and I believe that they are the very glue that keeps these systems from imploding. That's you. Where you work, where you dwell, you're keeping the system from imploding. And let me tell you, when the last trumpet sounds, you'll be gone and final judgment will come. Because of this, the one who bore the wrath in our place. And what do we do? Each Sunday, beloved, we step out of the secular. 
We come together on the Lord's Day to be equipped and to be reminded of our call, to be reminded of our purpose within the world in which we dwell, just like this first century church, surrounded by paganism. To be a light in the midst of darkness. It's Jesus, John 1, 4, for in him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness, what? Has not overcome it. It cannot overcome it. So as the light of the world, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, has unleashed these trumpet judgments of warning. This is a forewarning of that final judgment once again. You know, the lost world becomes like the idols that they serve. People have ears, but they can't hear. People have eyes, but they cannot see. People have feet, but they will not turn and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, regardless of the direct attack that takes place on one-third of the populace, there's no repentance. So it's important that we understand there's no evidence whatsoever in the Bible, there is no evidence in history, there's no evidence in this apocalyptic prophecy that would indicate that men ever come to faith by the droves to Jesus Christ by traumatic events such as this, or any event for that matter. You know, oftentimes when there's uh, calamity that strikes, you know, 9-11, Oklahoma City bombing, Katrina, things like that, you have two groups that debate. You have one group over here that says, this is God's judgment upon America. And then there's another group of Christians also that they say, no way, God would never do this. This is the work of Satan. Well, as I read my Bible, I see that they're both true. (laughs) They're both right. It's a warning trumpet call. But we're once again reminded that there's, the response here is not repentance. What are we reminded of? We're reminded of Romans 3, verse 11. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. So I ask this question, beloved. How is it? Here we sit. We've come here to worship God. We've come here to learn of the glory of God. How is it that we've been able to repent of these things? How is it that we've been able to turn from that which characterizes unbelief and rebellion and hatred against the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, by the only verse in this entire chapter that grants us a picture of atonement. That's how. It's because of atonement. It's because of the the blood-bought church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice with me verse 13. So let's back up. When the sixth angel blew his trumpet, I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. That golden altar, those four horns, that takes us back, beloved, to the book of Leviticus. And read this on the screen. He brought the bull of the sin offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering, and he what? He killed it. And Moses took the blood, and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it, and purified the altar, and poured out the blood at the base of the altar, and consecrated it to make atonement for it. So here now, the horns of the altar of of incense has been touched with the blood of the high priest which was crying out for mercy of God's people. Old Testament. Our great high, that was all a picture. That was all foreshadowing. Those were all symbols of the great high priest who would come and shed his blood. He sheds his blood for his people. 
so these same horns now cry out, beloved, in a heavenly picturesque scheme, crying out for vengeance of those who've offended the Lamb of God who reject him. So as we move forward into the glorious book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we read these words. Anyone who's, a set, aside, anyone who's set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of God or grace. In other words, as cited by the editors of the Reformation Study Bible, they say this, quote, if contemptuous violation of the law given through Moses, the servant warranted the punishment of death, then the scorn of the Son of God, his sacrificial blood, and the spirit of grace through whom he offered himself deserves nothing less than a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, end quote. Thus the reason we see the stripping open of the seven seal scroll of the Lamb. Grace is found at this altar. The atonement for all those who are in Christ. A payment for those he came to save. So may we not miss this deep strain, this woven thread of predestination right here in this text. Because the people of verse 21, the psalmist says they're flourishing evil in order that they might go to perdition. Now, when we read this striking statement, you have to ask, what, do I, what have I done to deserve my salvation? Answer, nothing. There's mercy here at this altar. Mercy. Grace is getting what you don't deceive, receive, or grace is receiving what you, um, what? <laughs> deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And here's mercy. We're not getting what we deserve. And it is the wrath of the lamb because wrath was laid upon the, ra- on the lamb for you. He took this wrath in your place. So number one, we don't need to envy those around us as they seem to prosper. Again, as the psalmist said, I, I, my feet almost stumbled, uh, my steps nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant. I was envy- envious of the worldly. So here now, two demonic woes have passed. God is punishing those who did not bear his seal on their foreheads. But always remember this, beloved. As you suffer, as you persevere, as you live the gospel, and as you return to the cross repeatedly, the grace of the gospel, these judgments are for those who have rejected the gospel. You want to know why what's going on around us is going on around us? This is why, beloved. By his death on the cross, he disarmed Satan. He disarmed demons over you. He disarmed demons above you. This death blow has already been dealt through the cross of Jesus Christ. Satan's been stripped of his power through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. His grace providing you a right standing before God and your right standing has absolutely nothing to do with you because you did nothing to earn it. It's a grace gift of God in Christ because of his eternal decrees and determination alone. 
He accomplished everything. So you stand sealed and secured, protected. That's the message being conveyed to this first century church. The same truth is to be conveyed to you today as we stand in the midst of persecution, temptation, trial. Surrounded by haters of the Lamb of God. So the churches of Asia Minor and all Christians from that time forward can read this and be assured that God will vindicate his holiness. He will vindicate his people judging all enemies of righteousness. So what you have at your disposal are the weapon, weaponries of warfare, which are the blood of Jesus Christ, his atoning work, and the new covenant promises of God. Sealed. Protected. Well, Christians die, they do. But when you do, you go into the presence of the Lord, amen? When these die, they suffer the fiery, red, yellow, sulfur of the blue flame, which represents eternal torment. He took that punishment for you. Close with this. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, you see, we, we, we understand the terror of the Lord, don't we? Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, what do we do? We persuade men with the gospel. Maybe you realize today that I know I don't have this, but I do desperately want this safety, this seal, this Lord. Well, he said quite simply, come unto me all you who are heavy laden. You come to him, come to me, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, Jesus said, for I am gentle and I am lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your what? For your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And if this is all news to you this morning, you come to him. Find rest that's eternal. You'll soon discover that you're sealed and protected from the judgment of eternity by the judgment that was placed upon the lamb at the cross where his blood was shed to make righteous all who do come by faith alone. Amen? Grotesque picture. May we be ever thankful for our salvation. Unmerited. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the striking pictures of Scripture. And help us, Lord, to keep them forever in the forefront of our minds, be shadowed by the cross, the price that was paid on our behalf that enables us the eternal security and the rest that can be found only through your son. May you bless your people to see the reality of why the world is like it is. But yet in the midst of it all, um, we can enjoy our journey here as Christian soldiers, knowing the terror of God and persuading men with this glorious truth. I pray for divine appointments for everyone in this room this morning. 
Lord, those hearts that you're working in because you have determined to save them out there and though they may, see so, they may seem so far from you and so opposed to you, Lord, I pray that you would break them down, that you would enable um, your saints in this room to see the power of the gospel unleashed upon an unbeliever's life that will save them just as we have been saved from every walk of life. As recipients of grace declaring this truth not shading over the judgment that is here and is to come, but going back to the cross where the ultimate, most grotesque judgment was unleashed. That was upon your Son, our Lord, and our Savior. For the good of your people and the glory of the Lamb, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.